Listener Production. In this episode, how are we going in the fight against the online drug trade? You don't have the buyers and sellers in the same place. You don't necessarily have records of uh, communications or even financial transactions taking place. So all of those things make it even harder for police to, to make any kind of progress in fighting, let alone winning the drug war. There are so many ways people are using messaging apps and dark web platforms to buy whatever they want. So we'll speak to a criminologist about how law enforcement agencies are struggling to stop that trade and also whether TikTok presents any new challenges. I think there is one uh, aspect of TikTok that is different from other social media in terms of potential additional risk, and that is that it pushes you content and figures out things that you like. That is all part of our briefing. First, here are today's headlines with Annika Smethurst and Katrina Blowers. It is Friday, June 17. In what could be a huge game changer for so many people, the National Employment Standard is being amended to include 10 days of universal paid family and domestic violence leave. Yeah, so more than 8 million Australians will be able to access this leave. The Employment and Workplace Relations Minister, Tony Burke, saying it could even be put before Parliament as soon as next month and then introduced by the end of the year. Like annual leave, the family and domestic violence leave is expected to accrue from year to year, but will be capped at 10 days. It'll be paid at an employee's base rate and will only be made available to permanent staff. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will hold his first national cabinet today. State and territory leaders are in Canberra and health is at the top of the agenda. During the height of the pandemic, the Morrison government increased Commonwealth funding for public hospitals to a 50-50 split, but that's due to expire in September. Now, all the states and territories have teamed up. They want that deal extended. We inherit a trillion dollars of debt with not much to show from it uh, for from the former government. So that's the context in which we'll consider uh, discussions going forward. We're not in a position to do everything we would like to do immediately. That's Anthony Albanese there. What do you reckon, Annika? Do you think this uh, will be a, a smooth meeting with people playing nice initially and then ramping up their claims later? How, how do you think it'll all work? Yeah, COAG's an interesting one, what we used to call COAG, now National Cabinet. It puts the Labor states in a bit of a pickle this time because they don't really want to go to war with the federal government. It's quite easy when they're on the opposite side of the ledger. You can sort of uh, hit them up for money when you like, but a Labor government hitting up a Labor government is a little difficult. One thing we have seen, though, is New South Wales and Victoria team up. Now, that is a Liberal government and a Labor government, but it is 57% of the population. Mm. And they've been putting a lot of new ideas forward around stamp duty and tax, childcare, health funding, and trying to, I guess, wedge the federal government to come with them. It's a real shift in the power play. But look, it will be a reset, new prime minister, and you'd have to think they'll at least get on for a little bit. Mining magnate Gina Reinhart, the chair of the ABC, Ida Buttrose and Atlassian founder Mike Cannon-Brooks are among a list of 121 Australians. And this also includes journos from Sky, the Nine Network and the ABC, who've all been blacklisted by Russia. Yeah, I checked the list this morning. A few of my colleagues are on it. I haven't made it yet. So it means that the people that are on it won't be able to go to Russia indefinitely 
due to their so-called Russophobic agenda. Now, Russian's foreign minister says more names could be added, so be careful, Katrina, in response <laughs> to sanctions from Australia. Yeah, not really planning a trip to Russia anytime soon. Uh, now, this comes as the PM is invited to the Ukrainian city of Kiev to see the destruction of the war firsthand when he is in Europe for the NATO summit next month. Today, the leaders of France, Germany, Italy and Romania are all in Kiev to show their support for the country. They visited the town of Erpin, where evidence of war crimes has been uncovered. The level of destruction caused by this war is horrible. It's even worse when you see, as we have here, how awfully senseless the violence really is. An entire city devoid of any military infrastructure has been destroyed. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz there. Now, the EU is deciding on whether to recommend Ukraine for membership. That's set to be announced next week. Something we'll all be watching and, of course, the ramifications of that too. Our Foreign Minister Penny Wong will be in the Solomon Islands today as part of ongoing efforts to improve our relationship with the island nation. She's the first Australian minister to travel to the archipelago since China announced a security deal with the country during the Australian election campaign. Now, that agreement alarmed officials in Australia and New Zealand and the US with fears it could lead to a stronger Chinese military presence in the Pacific and not very far away from Queensland and our northern border. Yeah, uh, Wong has even called the agreement the worst Australian foreign policy failure in the Pacific since the Second World War. As well as security, she and Prime Minister Manesse Sogavare will also discuss climate change and pandemic recovery. And a fresh day of evidence at the Chris Dawson trial. A witness, Robert Silkman, who played rugby league with Dawson in the 70s, had said Dawson asked him whether he knew anyone who could, quote, get rid of his wife. Yeah, Silkman told the court that conversation happened in October 1975 on a flight back from the Gold Coast. And this was seven years before Lynette Dawson's disappearance. The defence claimed Robert Silkman is an unreliable witness due to his criminal history. Dawson is charged with killing Lynette Dawson in January 1982 in order to pursue an unfettered relationship with the family's 16-year-old babysitter. And it's important to note that Dawson is pleading not guilty. All right, Annika, we are about to jump into today's briefing topic. It's a really interesting one, all about how some people are getting around the law by selling drugs on TikTok. TikTok's been the fastest growing social media platform ever. In just five years, it's had over 2 billion downloads and now reports 1.6 billion regular users, so about half of Facebook already. Now, lots of its users are young, so there's obviously concern that it's being used to sell, promote or introduce young people to drugs. Now, in the US last year, the Drug Enforcement Administration singled out TikTok for not doing enough around drugs. So we've got a criminologist who specialises in the online drug trade to discuss how concerned we should be about TikTok and where it fits into the much bigger and more established world of online drug trading, namely the dark web and the encrypted messaging apps. Dr. James Martin is a senior lecturer in criminology at Deakin Uni. James, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. There's a bit of concern around TikTok because it's the fastest growing platform 
It's attracted so many young, impressionable users. Do you think there's much cause for concern that dangerous drug messages or even drug trading is happening via TikTok? Honestly, it's probably a bit early to say. Um, but what we do see now with this alarm over TikTok is consistent with what we see with the development of pretty much any new communications technology. We saw it with uh, other plat- social media platforms. We saw it with the development of the dark web or the, or the Tor network. Every time one of these new platforms is developed, it's just a matter of time till uh, we start seeing it being used for legal purposes. And, and chief amongst those is a distribution of illicit drugs because there is such a, a strong demand for those products. So you said there, James, that it's sort of early days for TikTok, but given, I guess, the unique nature of this platform, that it's mostly about sharing videos, do you think it presents any obvious additional risk to the existing social media platforms, which all carry a risk of drugs being sold or dangerous messages being spread? Do you see much cause for alarm that the TikTok could be hugely different? I think there is one uh, aspect of TikTok that is different from other social media uh, in terms of of potential additional risk, and that is that it pushes you content and figures out things that you like, and there are are algorithms that will suggest um, and put content forward that you haven't searched for. Previously, if you wanted to find drugs on social media, you'd need to search them out yourself. Whereas people are being pushed these messages on TikTok, then there is perhaps some additional concern there that doesn't exist on other platforms. I would imagine, though, that it's it's not particularly well suited to selling drugs compared to um, fully encrypted messaging apps or dark web marketplaces. They're much better set up to provide people anonymous ways of contacting suppliers and and buyers and facilitating those exchanges. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We know that dealers who are using the dark web, for example, are protected by multiple layers of encryption and physical distance. And and it's very difficult for police to crack down on those individual dealers. And many of them are not concerned um, either because they underestimate the level of risk or perhaps because they actually just assume that even if they're, they're operating without those layers of protection on uh, an exposed surface web social media site, you know, they realise that there's little risk out there, you know, that they individually will be picked up because there's there's simply a scarcity of police resources there. Is there that much the social media companies can do to stop their platforms being used in, in the wrong way? I mean, I looked at TikTok's statement they put out last month for Fentanyl Awareness Day in the US and their action, I've got to say, looked pretty weak. They talked about supporting positive hashtags with healthy messages and then policing dangerous hashtags like hashtag drugs, um, which seem pretty lame um, (laughs) because people use a lot more subversive names than that to communicate around drugs. They also talked about getting their users to report dangerous content and kicking off dodgy users. And they also offer these modest sums of money like 20,000, 100,000 to support these organizations that work on drug safety. So that didn't seem very strong to me. I, I do wonder, potentially the other um, longer-running platforms have, have done more in this space. What do you make of the actions these these social media companies can take to sort of stand this stuff out? Well, I think like most uh, corporate action in these spaces, it's it's prompted overwhelmingly by a need to, to control public relations rather than necessarily right. addressing a problem. 
they'll make noises about using AI, for example, to try and crack down on the use of you know, dodgy hashtags or, you know, even image searches and stuff like that. I think, you know, by and large, if it, if it impacts the bottom line, then, you know, they're going to be very reluctant to take any strong action. So I guess we're at an interesting point where we actually have some history to look at here in terms of drug trading online. We've been using social media for about 15 years. It's nine years since the law enforcement in the US dramatically shut down Silk Road, which was the big dark web trading platform of the day. And there's been many more pop-ups since then, many more shut down. Where do you think we're at in this battle to control the selling of drugs online? When we zoom out and take a big picture look, I think you can generally say that the war on drugs is being lost as comprehensively as it ever has. We're at a state of real diversification when it comes to people who want to buy and sell illicit drugs. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got, as you mentioned, the dark web drugs trade, those sites are still going strong. But underneath that, you've had this proliferation of drugs being sold on non-encrypted platforms, you know, so, you know, everything from Snapchat, TikTok, to simple ads in Craigslist. What it points to is that they simply are not enough and there will never be enough police resources uh, to crack down on all of these different platforms uh, out there. And what about on the drug usage and buying side? How have trends evolved? How much of drugs are now being bought online in these various ways we've been talking about versus um, the older school ways, which was either connecting up through personal connections or just texting people and keeping your identity out of the, the exchange? Drugs that are being traded uh, online through various platforms, so whether that's you know dark web or social media, um, is increasing. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, it's generally safe to do so. I mean, there, there are risks uh, involved, and there you know there are deaths. Um, so I don't, I don't want to underplay this and say that there are no risks, but generally, certainly risks from law enforcement intervention are relatively low. And it offers people uh, immediacy and convenience. So, you know, people are able to access a dealer more easily than, than ever before, should they choose to do so. Um, and this is really, you know, reflective of, of the way technology works more generally. Uh, you know, we're, we're used to getting our food delivered to us if we're a little bit hungry. We're used to using social media to find events that we're interested in as well, you know, with with unprecedented convenience. So, it, you know, it makes sense that illicit drugs are being uh, used these ways as well. Uh, but I think one of the things that's, that's really interesting in this space is that every time these new technologies come out, people assume that they're going to have some radical impact on the levels of drug consumption that are, that are happening in Australia. Mm. And what we see is that it's generally not the case. Uh, and that people like to consume the same illicit drugs that they always have. You know, pe people are always surprised to hear that cannabis, for example, is the most commonly traded illicit drug on the dark web, and that's the same on social media. So it's the basic underlying demand that really drives these markets, no matter what platform you're using, even back to the sort of more old-school analog ways people used to trade drugs. That's quite an interesting observation in itself. And I guess to, to sum up what you were saying before, we were already losing the war on drugs, meaning that people were still getting the drugs they wanted despite it being illegal. But now that we have all these other online mechanisms of trading, you're essentially saying that that war is being lost by an even greater margin because it's more convenient and lower risk than ever to buy illicit drugs. That's right. You know, the more that these drugs go online, they add a, a layer of technological complexity that didn't used to exist 
with illicit drug investigations. You know, you, it used to be in the old days, uh, you know, people would be selling drugs on the street or maybe through a closed network, but the police could arrive, execute a buy-bust operation. So, you know, pretend to be a customer or something like that, arrest a dealer. And then you've got you've got everything in the one spot that you would need for a drug conviction there. You've got the dealer, you've got the drugs, you've got the money, and you've got some sort of evidence that a transaction has taken place. Whereas these days, as soon as you add technology, and particularly if it's uh, layers of encryption, you don't have the, the buyers and sellers in the same place. You don't necessarily have records of uh, communications or even financial transactions taking place. So all of those things make it even harder for police to, to make any kind of progress in fighting, let alone winning the drug war. So the trade's as strong as ever, the ways of getting it are easier and lower risk than ever, and the job of the police is harder than ever. So I guess that leads to the the bigger question, should we be changing our approach? And the most interesting development um, in that space recently is the Australian Capital Territory moving to small fines for possession rather than criminal prosecution. Do you think that's a step in the right direction? Absolutely. It's been a long time that experts working in the area have been arguing and you know pointing the need for for the need to look at other kinds of uh, approaches to to the regulation of illicit drugs. And there's the thing that no one is arguing that these drugs uh, are harmless. People who work in the space have been arguing for the longest time that to reduce these harms, we need to get away from the supply reduction model, which you know that that is uh, you know trying to interrupt supply through police operations because. Uh, the evidence, not just here in Australia, but around the world, is that uh, that they're expensive, that they're ineffective, and they often increase drug-related harms. Uh, but when you start looking at alternative modes of drug regulation, such as what we're seeing in the ACT, decriminalisation for small amounts, then what you do is you, you have the potential to reduce drug-related harms. Uh, so people, are, for example... If you've got a music festival in the ACT now uh, and someone's got a, a pocket full of MDMA that they might be planning on taking over the course of the day or sharing with their mates once they get inside and they see, uh, you know, some drug detection dogs coming their way, they're much less likely to, to panic consume those drugs, which has been linked to a number of overdose deaths. It's also likely that people who have problems with uh, illicit drugs and use them in a problematic way, um, so they might you know, be wanting to use less are uh, more likely to seek treatment in a context of decriminalisation because there's less stigma and less fear about, um, you know, running into problems with the law. Uh, and, of course, you're you're saving huge amounts of money and not putting people into, into prison environments that don't otherwise need to be there. So, you know, it's very exciting to see some progress in this space, and I think the ACT has done the right thing. That was Dr James Martin from Deakin Uni. So some interesting takeaways there that TikTok is just a a new uh, platform amongst many others, arguably not as well suited to selling drugs uh, as some other platforms, particularly those encrypted or dark web platforms. And also that as these online marketplaces, which are hugely popular, continue to do a roaring trade, it makes the war on drugs from police more futile than ever. So... I guess what will be interesting to keep an eye on here is how much our our law enforcement and our laws change to meet this ever-evolving reality. And of course, the briefing isn't just contained to Monday to Friday. We have a weekend edition too, Jam. What have you got for us? I 
have had the absolute pleasure of chatting with Pete Hellier for Saturday's weekend briefing episode. He is, of course, a regular host on the project. You would have seen him on Tens, How to Stay Married. He's got rad podcasts and children's books and a stand-up special that's on Paramount Plus right now. But I, I kind of wanted to get to know Pete off screen and off camera and off mic. I wanted to get to know what this beautiful, soft, happy, smiley, kind, funny dude is like when he's away from all of that. I think I kind of got there. This is honestly such a lovely listen for everybody's weekend. I really recommend this one. Oh, that sounds amazing. I had the pleasure of working with Pete Hellier many years ago. He is an absolute legend and so kind to everyone he meets. I'll definitely be tuning in for that. All right, that is it for us for this week of The Briefing. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to everyone behind the scenes who makes this show happen. We'll catch you again on Monday. Listener.